there is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Let's open the Word of God together again, the Second Corinthians chapter number 8. And we come tonight to the third ship of stewardship. We've talked about fellowship. Uh, that is our relationship to the church. We've talked about worship. That's our relationship to our God. And tonight, I bring you to discipleship. That is our relationship to Christ. And I say it last, not because it's least, but because really it's the whole thing. Discipleship is not a series of lessons. It is not a program. Somebody said, oh, yes, we have a discipleship program. Well, that's great. But actually, discipleship is the whole Christian life. It's following Jesus and coming near to Christ and learning more of Christ. May I just ask, how many of you are in discipleship right now? Would you raise your hand, please? Let me give you a hint. If you're saved, that's you. How many of you are in discipleship? Would you raise your hand? Because unless you're perfect, any perfect ones among us, you have not yet apprehended. You're following after, is that right? So we come to Christ at salvation, but then we keep on coming and we keep on coming and we keep on coming until the day we hear come up hither and come into the presence of God. On that day, we'll be just made like the Son of God. Won't that be a glorious day? But until that day, we are all still in the process of becoming true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an event, it's a way of life. It's not a destination, it's a journey. And so we return to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's just back up and read the whole thing again. It'll be good for us. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Let me just pause there just a moment and point out to you that if you remember that, that word Macedonia in the book of Acts, do you remember? Come over into where? Macedonia and help us. And from there, Paul goes to Philippi, Paul goes to Thessalonica, Paul goes to Berea. Basically, this region, the northern part of Greece, what we now call the northern part of Greece, would have been considered Macedonia. The southern part would have been where the believers in Corinth were. So he's, he's teaching the southerners something from the Yankees. That's what he's doing, all right? He's taking the Macedonian churches and using them as an illustration to give instruction. I find it interesting that the churches he references are the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Let that sink in just a moment. You want to talk about exemplary churches? Philippi was the church that was just absolutely, absolutely eaten up with the gospel. That's what they were. Because on the very first day, Lydia's heart got open. And a demon-possessed girl got set free, and a jailer and his whole household got saved, and a church started in Philippi. No wonder there was so much joy in Philippi. When Jesus is front and center, he brings his joy. So they, they're exemplary because they're a joyful church. Then you got the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica is commonly referred to as the model church. Read First and Second Thessalonians. 
and see the great positive example as they followed the Lord. One little interesting footnote to that is that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. People get this idea, you need some long meeting for the Lord to really work. I'm going to just tell you something. In my own personal experience, sometimes God does more in one day than we could in two or three years when the people are ready to receive. And they were ready. And then from there, he goes to Berea. Anybody remember the Berean believers? They were the noble souls. Everybody remember them? They were willing and ready to receive the word of God. Get this picture in your mind. You want to be an exemplary church? Let's take a vote on it. How many of you would like this church to be an exemplary church? Yes? Then let it be a church filled with the gospel and the joy of Jesus. Let it be a church that lets God work thoroughly in you to teach you whatever he wants to teach you. And let it be a church that's wide open and ready to receive the truth of the word of God. And when that's the kind of church this is, I tell you, God will make this church an exemplary church. God will let this church be a model that other churches can follow. So he's using these Macedonian believers as an illustration. Read on, verse 2. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. I wonder, are you an abundant Christian? Are you living right now in God's abundance? Not physically, not materially or financially, spiritually. Are you abounding in the grace and joy of Jesus? If I really wanted to know, I wouldn't ask your pastor. I'd ask the people that live at your house. I'd ask your kids. How many of you know the kids always tell the truth? You want to know what kind of preacher I am? You can listen to a sermon. But if you want to know what kind of Christian I am, ask that lady right there. She'll have to tell you. And ask our children. They'll have to tell you. Nobody's a better Christian than the Christian they are at home. And these people were abounding with the joy and goodness and grace of God. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us, such entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. I noticed this today, just meditating on this. Verse number 4, the word he used here for praying us with much entreaty literally means to beg. Now get this picture just a minute. These people were so excited to give their offering, they were begging someone to take it. Have you ever been in a church service where people just said, would you hurry up and take the offering because we just can't wait to give it? And in fact, we usually think the people that are receiving the offering are the beggars, you know. It's fascinating to me. When you get full of God, full of the grace of God, you just can't wait to give because you know the Lord's working in you and the Lord's working through you. The givers were the beggars. Verse 5, and this they did, not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So the Lord works in them, now the Lord works through them. If you haven't marked it in your Bible already, in verse 4, you should mark the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. That is the fellowship of stewardship. We're ministering to one another. Let this be a one another church. As a matter of fact, turn one page. Just turn one page. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, how he picks it up in the next chapter. For as touching the ministering to the saints. Same expression. And, of course, now he's dealing with material things. We're not just loving in word. We're loving in deed and in truth. This is what it means to be a part of the fellowship. Now, go back to chapter 8. And in verse number 6, excuse me, verse number 5, we find the worship of our stewardship. It's Godward. We give ourselves to God first and then to the needs of others. So you've got the fellowship of stewardship. That's the church. You've got the worship of stewardship. That's God. Now let's read on. 
insomuch, verse 6, that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. This is fascinating. Would you mark the word begun and the word finish in verse 6? Our God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Let's get real practical. Let's get down where we live for a moment. Do you know what he's praying in verse number 6? He said, you had the best of intentions and you've made great promises of how you're going to help, but I've sent Titus along to try to encourage you to actually follow through on what you said you were going to do. Old Chinese proverb says, too much talky-talky, not enough walky-walky. I think they're right. So we got a lot of people with the best of intentions. we got a lot of church members and Christians who say, oh, yes, preacher, I want to really be a giver. I want to be a good steward. I want to serve the Lord. But how many times we sit in a church service and make those declarations and offer that kind of prayer and even give a public testimony to it and then walk right out those doors and go home and nothing changes. May I say, are we just having another meeting this week? Is that all we're doing? I mean, we're just having a meeting because it happened to be on the calendar. God forbid. If that's the case, let's just shut our Bibles and close up shop and I'll go home now because I'm wasting my breath and you're wasting your time. If nothing's going to change, if nothing's going to be different in our lives and the, and the things that matter to us and our priorities, if nothing's going to be different, we are, have failed to let the grace of God work in us like it wants to because somewhere it has to be finished in us. Keep reading verse number 7. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment. I love that. He said, I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm not lording over you. I'm not beating you over the head. I'm not trying to guilt you into this. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, thank you Jesus, for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Are there any rich folk here tonight? Any rich folk here? I'm not talking about your money. May I tell you, if you're saved tonight, how many of you know you're saved? Glad about it? If you're saved tonight, your father's wealthy. And you have a part in that inheritance. In fact, you've got riches this world has never even imagined. All oh, the blessings here, that's a part of the riches. But you wait. I have not seen, ear hath not heard. It has not entered into the heart of men the things God hath prepared for them that love him. Oh, yes, I'm a wealthy man. Wealthy in the grace of Almighty God. Do you see what Paul does? He, he starts with the example of the Macedonians, but he leads them to the example of Jesus. Do you know what the Lord Jesus is? The Lord Jesus is the ultimate example. What did, what did Peter say? That you should follow in his steps. Look, you can follow the believers in Philippi, and you can follow the believers in Thessalonica, and you can follow the believers in Berea, and you can even follow the steps of the Apostle Paul. But if you're really following people that are sincere, they're always going to lead you to Jesus. And so in the opening verses, we're following the example of faithful Christians. Aren't you glad for the example of faithful Christians? 
Look, there's people used to sit where you're sitting right now that have already gone to heaven. How many of you can think of somebody like that? If it wasn't for some of those people, this church wouldn't even be here. There's a generation that's gone on before us, and we ought to all just pause and say, thank you, God, they were faithful. Now help us be faithful when it's our turn. But I'm going to tell you something. What we really are after is following Jesus. And so tonight, I basically have two points. That's it, just two points, and they're very simple, about the discipleship of stewardship. And when I finish, I'm going to ask you if you'll make a commitment on both. And for the record, neither of them have to do with money. Aren't you relieved about that again? See, that's the least thing. That's the, that's the lesser thing. That'll come, but that's not the main thing. No, no, the discipleship of stewardship brings us to verse number 9. Let's just concentrate on verse number 9 because here is our relation to Jesus, our example, our motive, our great goal is Christ. Look at verse number 9. Matter of fact, let's just read verse 9 out loud together. Are you ready? Got it in front of you? 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. There's a lot of doctrine wrapped up in that one verse. On one side, we see Jesus. No, we got a whole title here, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have, his, we have his humanity and his deity. We have his humility and his glory, the perfection of all wrapped up in his title and full name here, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I like to say it that way. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Lord Jesus Christ. And we have not only who he is, we have what he did. What did he do? He became poor so he could make us rich. When I look at this verse, I see not only Christ, I see myself. Oh, this is wonderful. I see me in this verse. The recipient of the grace of God. The one for whom the Lord Jesus Christ came. Might I say, the ultimate steward. You want to know what stewardship looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what a steward does? Watch Jesus. You want to know how a steward talks? Listen to Jesus. Would you like to know how a steward thinks? Think like Jesus. Because in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of true stewardship doing everything the Father gave him to do all the way to the very end. So how does that translate into our discipleship? What's the application? Two things. Here they are. Number one, seek to be a more true disciple of Jesus yourself. That's obvious. Every one of us ought to pray right now, Dear Lord, I want to be a better follower of Jesus. <laughs> do you know who the hardest people are to get this truth across to? People who've been saved a long time. That's strange, isn't it? I'm in churches sometimes where the, they're just full of first-generation Christians, just full of them. Just a bunch of people just got saved, and I'm just going to testify and tell you, I love it. They can't find the, the, the places in the Bible quickly. They don't know how to follow along in the hymn book exactly right. They've not yet learned all of our jargon. They still are excited about being saved. They, they haven't been around it so long that they've become professional Christians. 
They don't know the motions and mechanics of it all, but there's still something burning on the inside. They're just glad that Jesus loved them and saved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. And something happens to us. We've been saved a little while. We've heard that before. We know that already. And if you're not careful, you can think you're being a true disciple of Jesus when in reality you're just going through the motions, but you really are following afar off instead of being near to the heart of Jesus Christ. You know what real stewardship looks like, real discipleship looks like? It means that we are constantly seeking to be nearer to Christ, closer to Christ. I'm praying right now while I'm preaching to you, dear God, please make me more like Jesus. Please make me more like Jesus. Less of me and more of him. He must increase. I must decrease. You want to know what real spiritual awakening looks like? I'm going to tell you. Real spiritual awakening looks like this. The Lord starts getting out of you everything that doesn't look like Jesus and putting into you everything that does look like Jesus. And it's painful. It's spiritual surgery. And God takes the scalpel of the Holy Ghost, the sword of the Spirit, and starts wounding you so he can heal you, cutting things out of your life that shouldn't be there, and then grafting things in that need to be there. Oh, he's stamping the lovely image of Jesus on our souls. And I want to pray tonight, dear God, make me more like Jesus so when people look at me and follow me, it will lead them closer to Jesus Christ. We must begin by saying, I I want to be... Not just more like other Christians. I want to be more like the Lord Jesus. Back up one phrase in your Bible and look at the end of verse number 8. Would you mark this expression? To prove the sincerity of your love. Would you like to know what it is to be like Jesus? Sincerity and charity. Look Look at the phrase. There's sincerity and there's love. Sincerity means no no falsehood, no facade, no no front. It's the real deal. Somebody just said to me this week, I was in a car with a couple people, and a man said something. He said, you know, the Bible says confess your faults one to another. And he said, you know, the truth matter is, he said, I, I don't hear much of that anymore. He said, it's almost like, you know, we all try to give the impression we're perfect all the time. We want everybody to think we got it all together. Let me just tell you, people who act like they got it all together are usually coming apart at the seams. Now, one of the words that's become a buzzword in circles recently is authentic. People want authentic, authentic, authentic. Do you know why that is? Because there's so much fake. After a while, you think, is anything genuine? Is anybody real? I mean, is anybody a real follower of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what it means to be a true follower of the Lord and the right kind of steward. It means there's a genuineness to your faith. You're not perfect But there is sincerity there. In fact, even the word sincere, it's a fascinating word. It's an old word that means no wax. No wax? Mm -hmm. In Paul's day, they would sell sell vessels in the marketplace. And very often, uh, a vessel would have a crack in it, just a little tiny hairline crack, but it made it unusable. So the people that were selling it would take hot melted wax and would would fill in the cracks with wax, sand over it, paint over it, put it out of the marketplace and sell it as a whole vessel. And some unsuspecting soul comes by and buys that vessel, takes it home because it wasn't just to be looked at, it was to be used and sets it over the open fire to cook with it. You tell me what happens to the wax when the fire hits it. 
that moment it melts, the crack is revealed, and the vessel begins to leak and becomes absolutely unusable. Hear, hear what the Holy Ghost is saying to us. Don't just fill in the cracks for public consumption. Don't, don't be an Instagram Christian with the right kind of filter so everybody will see you a certain way. Instead, you let the Lord make you whole and complete. You be a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. See, none of us are what we say we are. And none of us are what others think we are. But we are all what God knows us to be. Sincerity. And then you got charity, full of the love of God. Full of the love of God for sinners, full of the love of God for hurting people, full of the love of God for the down and outers, full of the love of God for folks who are under the load and burdened. Are you full of the love of God? This is deeply convicting to me, but you, let me give you a little assignment. Read 1 Corinthians 13 sometime on your knees. Read it on your knees. Read it out loud on your knees. And as you do, pray over every phrase of it. And ask the Holy Spirit, is this really in me? Would anybody look at us and say, I'll tell you one thing about those people, they're full of the love of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. You know, you all have amazing facilities. We were looking, coming in tonight and talking about the buildings and how beautiful they are and they're well cared for, and they should be. That's a stewardship in itself. But Jesus never said, by your beautiful buildings, they will know. And you have great music. I love the choir today, the special and all of it. But he never said, by your beautiful music renditions, they will know you're my disciples. He didn't say, by your preaching style, they'll know you're my disciples. You know what he said? By your love, they will know. You know why that is? Because love is who God is. It's not what he does. It's who he is. I tell you this. You let your soul get bathed in the love of God, and the giving will never be a problem. Because now... You'll be so overwhelmed with the love of God that everything else seems minuscule in comparison to that love. Oh, to prove the sincerity of our love. I noticed something today. Uh, go, go to the verse after verse 9. I'm not going beyond it, preaching tonight, but just, just look at it. Uh, back in verse number 3, he talked about them being willing. Remember that? Be willing. Come to verse 10. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who had begun before it not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. By the way, isn't that an interesting expression? Could you back up to one year ago and tell me what was going on in your life? This precious couple this morning said to me, we, we were here and came to the Lord when the last time you were here. That meant a lot to me and to my wife, and I thank you for telling me that. But you got little memories, you know, that come up that just remind you what things the Lord has done. But this is really interesting. I don't think Paul was just trying to encourage him. I think this is a little, little poke, a little prod, if you will. He said, you know, a year ago you said you were going to do this. Mm. May I ask you, is there anything you said a year ago you were going to do? Is there anything you said at this conference last year? You know, we, we really need to do that. And you still have, no, let me ask you, how many more years are you going to wait? Let me ask you a different way. How many more years are you going to waste? Look at verse 11. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. Now, I put that in the vernacular of the day. Get it done. Stop talking about it and do something about it. Perform the doing of it. That as there was, mark this, a readiness to will. 
so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Do you see the readiness? Do you see the willingness? This is something God's been working on me about. Am I a ready Christian? Are you a ready Christian? I remember years ago hearing people talk about sitting on ready. I'm just sitting on ready. I wonder if we're really sitting on ready. Like if the sweet Holy Ghost of God just said to you tonight, this is what I want you to do, would he have to repeat himself? How loud would he have to say it? How long would he have to say it to get our attention? Is there really a readiness to will? I'm thinking even, even in the giving of the gospel, we'll talk about that in just a moment. What did Paul say? I am ready to preach the gospel to those that are at Rome also. I got convicted about this the other day, Pastor. I was in a place... And I had an opportunity to speak to somebody about their soul, and I missed my moment. I just missed my moment. And don't look at me so pious. You do too. I missed it. The person asked a question, made a passing comment, went right on, and I had my moment, and before I realized it, the person was gone, and I would missed it. And that verse came to my mind, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And I prayed right then, Holy Spirit, you're going to have to help me. I need to be more ready. I need to be ready to speak a word for Jesus. I need to be ready to show the love of God. I need to be ready to minister when you give me an opportunity to minister. Look, friends, you're never passing this way again. And some opportunities you'll never have again. We're stewardship of the moment, the time that we have, the opportunity. The door is open now. The window is open now. But it will not be open forever. Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. What will we do now I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to make the most of the moments I have like Jesus did. He only lived 33 and a half years. His public ministry only three and a half years. Somebody said, wonder why he didn't get longer. Would you like to know why he didn't get longer? Because that wasn't the Father's will. Somebody said, well, imagine how much good he could have done in 60 years. No, that's not why he came. He came on a specific mission, and the Father is the one who prescribed the time of his coming, the fullness of the time, and the time of his death, the hour that God had set on the calendar. And in the same way, the Lord has given you a moment. You, you know when it started, when you were born, and when you were born again, but you have no idea when your hour is. You have no idea when that moment is you're going to meet God. i tell you what we ought to do. Between here and the finish line, we ought to say, I want to be more a true follower of Jesus Christ. I don't want to just be a church member. I don't want to just say I'm saved. I don't want to just go through the motions and check the boxes and be a nice, tidy little Christian. I want to, by the grace of God, get beyond myself and out of my comfort zone, and I want to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus. In fact, look down at verse number 9 again. Do you see this expression? We'll talk more about it. For your sakes he became poor. Do you know what that phrase is? In one phrase... That is the whole teaching of Philippians 2. Let me prove it to you, all right? Hold your place here. We'll come right back. Turn over just a few pages. Remember, Philippi was one of those Macedonian churches. Come to Philippians chapter 2. Here's, here's the mind of the minister, the servant, the steward, the disciple. It's the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, verse number 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Somebody said, what kind of mind is that? Here it is. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You might want to write over Philippians chapter number 2 this phrase, for your sakes he became poor. That's what he did. The mind of Jesus is a mind of love. It's a mind of of humility. It's a mind of sacrifice. It's a mind for others. And here's what I've discovered. If you try to get people to get along, it never works. If you try to get people to fix and repair things between themselves, it never works. If you try to get people to straighten out things this way first, it never works. But when you can get those people both right with God, it's amazing. The Lord brings unity and oneness. See, we don't always agree with each other. Look at the person next to you just a second. Would you stare at the person you're sitting next to by the good providence of God? Stare at them. Do you always agree with that person, yes or no? Now, I just heard some wives say, absolutely not. But anyhow, look around you just a second. See all the people gathered in this church? Do you think everybody in this church is going to agree all the time? Pfft, never. But here, this is beautiful. You don't have to agree with me, and I don't have to agree with you. We just all have to agree with Jesus. And if we can all come and say, we want the mind of Jesus. You know what I'd like? I'd like to stop thinking like Scott, because Scott doesn't think right most of the time. I'm going to tell you what I'd like. I'd like to think like Jesus. Anybody else like to think like Jesus? It's just the discipleship of stewardship. Look, get on board, friends. Get on the ship. Get on the discipleship. Look, please, you want to go where God wants you to go? You want to be what God wants you to be? You want to do what God wants you to do? You want to give what God wants you to give? It's got to start with you getting close to Jesus. The sincerity of your love and the willingness to do whatever God says to do. That's the essence of discipleship. Let's go back to our text and let me show you the second thing. Number one, we want to seek Willingly, gladly to be an obedient disciple of Jesus, a better disciple, follower of Jesus. Number two, we want to seek to make other disciples of Jesus. Do you see the context? It's powerful. See, there's a tendency in passages like this to think it's all about money and material things. And then you come to a verse like verse 9 and the Holy Ghost says, let me just remind you that this is not about stuff. Stuff that burns up and breaks down and thieves steal it. and all. No, no, this is about souls. Look at it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. Stop right there and look at me just a minute. How rich was Jesus? How rich was he? <laughs> he owned everything. He owns it all. Look at the glory and the grandeur and the greatness. Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem, just like the Holy Ghost didn't begin at Pentecost. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He has always been, and in eternity past, before the Garden of Eden, our Lord Jesus lived in the perfect splendor and riches of the glory of Almighty God. Yes, I'd say he was rich. 
But look at this, though. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. May I ask, how poor did he become? Read Isaiah 53. Isaiah will tell you. Now let's let Jesus speak for himself. Somebody said, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I'll go wherever you say, wherever you want to go. And Jesus said, well, I don't have any place to sleep tonight. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Imagine the one who was so wealthy he owned the whole world. So poor that he had to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because he had no house to go to. That's Jesus. I'm not trying to get you to think about his humanity in some pitiful way. Don't miss the spiritual application. Why did he do that? Here's the phrase, for your sakes. Hmm. Here's the heart of Jesus. Here's the mission of Jesus, for your sakes, for your sakes, for your sakes. Why Why Calvary? For your sakes. Why the cross? For your sakes. Why all of the, the suffering you endured? For your sakes. Look at the end of the verse, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Jesus, the lovely son of God, did not cease being God. He's not 50-50. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's perfect humanity robed in perfect deity. So he never ceased to be God. But he did lay aside the free expression of that glory and he veiled it in flesh, and he came to earth. And why did he do that? Jesus came to this earth to bring God to man so that he could bring man to God. That's what that verse says. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our darkness so we could take God's light. He took hell so we could take heaven. He took sin so we could take righteousness. He took death so we could take life. He took poverty so we could take riches. There's only one reason you've entered into the riches of the grace of God, and there's only one reason you'll enter into the riches of the glory of God someday, and that is because our Lord Jesus, for your sakes, became poor. Nobody took it from him. He willingly gave himself and laid it all down. You say, why are you saying this tonight, preacher? I'm going to tell you why. Because if you're going to be a good steward, that's more than just putting some money in the plate. We do too much stuff in our American Christianity to appease our consciences. American Christianity is a thousand miles away from Acts Christianity. We need to return to real New Testament Christianity. You know what it means to be a real steward? It means to be a disciple of Jesus. Watch this. It means, number one, to seek to be closer to Christ. He's the master and you're the follower. And you're following near. And you're walking in his steps. And you're learning everything you can learn. And you're seeking to capture his heart. And you're letting the Holy Spirit develop a mind of Christ in you. Dear Lord, be thorough with us this week. Then watch. It's not just about us. Now it turns inside out. Because now we not only are seeking to be disciples of Christ ourselves, we are seeking to help make other disciples of Christ. Why did Jesus do all that he did? Here's the answer. Are you ready? So that people could be saved. That's it. That's the whole thing. In fact, would you write this down somewhere? Jesus was a steward of souls. May I ask you, are you a steward of souls? You are. That's why he left us here. So let's get personal for a minute. In the last week, if you've given your gospel testimony to anyone, 
When was the last time you said to somebody, I'm concerned about where you're going to spend eternity? How long has it been since you said, can I tell you how I trusted Jesus as my Savior? Can I give you something to read about knowing Jesus and let's talk about it later? How long has it been since we wept over souls? Now, don't get me wrong. No, nobody sacrifices like the Lord did. Watch this, please. His sacrifice, his giving was redemptive. Ours is responsive. In other words, when our Lord Jesus laid down his life and became poor so we could be rich, it was for the salvation of souls. Nobody else has to do that. Nobody else could do that. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But now, if I'm really a true follower of Jesus Christ and I've really gained those riches, you know what I ought to desire? I ought to desire others to come to know Jesus Christ. Others. Somebody wrote the poem years ago, Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be, Help me to live for others so that I might live like thee. You ever heard that poem? It's a good one. Some cynic came back and rewrote it this way. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this their motto be. Let others live for others so all may live for me. That's how most people live. Isn't that right? We want everybody else to think of others, but what of us? Now, I tell you, the mind of a steward is one that does not live to protect what he has. It is one that lives to lay it all down so God will get the glory and others can come to know Jesus. You ever heard you can't take your money with you? How many of you heard that before? I'm going to tell you what you can do. You can send it on ahead. You say, well, how do you do that? By investing in the only thing that's going there. And that's the eternal souls of people. If the trumpet sounded tonight, we all went to be with God and stood at the judgment seat before midnight, would you have much to meet on the other side? I'm not asking what the 401k is doing now in your retirement and how much money's in the bank. I'm not against all that either. You ought to be a good steward here. But I'm asking, have you sent anything on ahead? Are you just spending or are you really investing? The longer I live, the more I realize that the greatest thing in the world is the price of a soul, the value of a soul. It was precious to see souls come to Jesus this morning. How many of you were excited about that? Well, there's a world full of them out there. They need Jesus. Zinzendorf was standing in an art gallery one day in Germany. and He was looking at an artist's rendering of the sufferings of Christ. No artist can paint the sufferings of Christ, but it was an artist's rendering of Calvary and the three crosses and the man on the middle cross and excruciating pain. And Zinzendorf, just a 16, 17-year-old boy, was captured with it. He's standing there looking at it and turns to walk away and, and his eyes catch a little plaque underneath the painting that says this, All this have I done for thee, what hast thou done for me? And a young man went back to his university that day. By the way, he was wealthy. Zinzendorf was a very wealthy young man. Had inherited a fortune. He went back to his university that day, went to a room where he lodged with some other young men, and he couldn't get away from the question, and he thought about all Jesus had done for him, all that he'd received. And he said to the Lord, Lord, I've not done anything in response to that, but you deserve everything. What can I do? By the way, can I just give you a piece of advice? Paul said he gave some advice. Can I give some advice? Why don't you ask the Lord to tell you what you're supposed to do? You don't have to be afraid of that. Tammy and I pray over our missions giving. Lord, what do you want us to do this year? How, what do you want us to increase it? 
we pray over that. Look, you ask God, God will tell you what to do. And that's what Zinzendorf did. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Holy Spirit prompted him to get a, a, two or three boys together who were believers and start a prayer meeting. And somebody says, that's nice. Mm -hmm. It was nice. It lasted for 100 years. You ought to study the Moravian Missionary Movement. It grew out of that prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting went on round the clock for a century. Hundreds of thousands of people went to the mission field, and many more were saved, all because one young man got a glimpse of Jesus and said, I'm going to be a better steward because of how good the Lord has been to me. I was reminded this week, Amy Carmichael. How many of you know the story of Amy Carmichael? This is a missions-minded church. Amy Carmichael, you know, missionary to India, rescuing those little girls, being sold into, into prostitution in Hindu temples. Awful. And she, she went. You ought to read Amy Carmichael's dream. It'll stir you up. Amy Carmichael went to get the gospel to those people in India, and the Lord used her in a mighty way. You know where it all started? It started one night in a meeting where D.L. Moody was preaching, and Moody was preaching on that passage in the prodigal. You know, the elder brother, and daddy comes out of the house, and just the phrase, and Moody made a, a passing comment about the phrase, all that I have is thine. And like that, she said, the Holy Spirit sent an arrow to her heart and said, think about all you have. Think about all that you have in God. What are you doing with what God has given you? I'm going to tell you something, people. I'm overwhelmed standing here talking to you right now with how good God has been to me and how utterly accountable to God I am for that. What am I doing to be more like Jesus and what am I doing to bring others to Jesus? Because in the end, that is the essence of the discipleship of stewardship. Do you have that quote back there by David Livingston that was up here a while ago? Would you mind putting it up again for a moment? I don't know that I've ever been in a church where they put up something like that, and, and I loved it. And I said to my wife, I've never seen anything like that before in, in offering time, but I like it a lot, and I'm going to recommend it to others. And I'm sitting there just looking at this quote. Did you read it? How many of you did read it? It's powerful. I'll place no value on anything I have or possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything I have will advance that kingdom, it shall be given or kept, whichever will best promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes both for time and eternity. That, friends, is not a mouthful. That's a heartful right there. That's tremendous. I've never seen that quote. David Livingston died on his knees praying. Wouldn't that be a great way to go to heaven? I mean, seriously, can you imagine being on your knees, talking to God, and boom, you're in his presence. He was up in years, Oxford and Cambridge, you both tried to get him to come home and become a professor and have all the rights and privileges and all the wealth. He turned it all down. Carried by servants from village to village because his feet were bleeding with open sores on the soles of them so bad he couldn't walk on them anymore. And they carried him from village to village so he could preach the gospel. A servant comes in in the middle of the night to check on him and he's not in bed and lights a candle and comes around and finds Livingston down on his knees and he sees him there and watches him for a moment and he doesn't move and he goes to check on him and realizes he's gone to be in the presence of God while he was in prayer. Whew. Those Africans said to the people, the English people, they said, we'll ship his body back to you. You can have his body, but his heart belonged to us. They cut his heart out buried it under an oak in Africa. 
shipped his body back to England. On the day that they buried him, they carried his body to Westminster Abbey to lay it to rest. I've been to that place and looked at it and thought about that man's life. All the shops closed. The city shut down. Thousands lined the thoroughfare as they carried his body to its final resting place, at least for a time. Did you know that David Livingston had a brother? His name was John. Nobody talks much about John Livingston today. Few have ever heard of him. But in his day, he was just as well known as David. He was extremely wealthy. They grew up in the same home, heard the same preaching, went to the same churches. But the part of the ways came when David Livingston believed that his life was to be given to God and whatever God wanted. And John decided that he wanted to become an attorney. That was his goal and make as much money as he possibly could. And he succeeded in both. Had a massive estate in England. And when John Livingston was dying, his family all gathered around his bed. You know, death clarifies a whole lot. They're all standing around his bed saying their goodbyes and thanking their daddy for all they'd done for them. And one of them said, Daddy, we're going to erect the biggest monument, the biggest memorial to your life and contribution when you're gone. What epitaph would you like on it? What, what would you like it to say? And they said, without exception, just like that, no hesitation. He lifted his head and looked at his family and said, only one thing. Only one thing is to be put on my memorial. He said, I want you to put these words, here lies the brother of David Livingston. Because <laughs> see, when you get near the end, money and the houses and the accolades and the accomplishments, that's not what matters. What matters is what counts for eternity. And if that's what counts then, don't you think that should count now? And the only two things that really matter, fellow disciples, fellow stewards, is that we follow close to Jesus and we lead others to him. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.